Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Inside the Gamecocks podcast, May 6, 2021. J.C. Sherbert here with you. Uh, good to be talking Gamecocks again. <clears throat> Had a nice little break at the beginning of the week. This month is a birthday month. Lots of people I know born this month and uh, had some celebrations to do earlier this week. I always had a good time. Uh, but back in the saddle, ready to roll here, ready to roll on the bigspur.com. Got to, a VIP piece coming up where, you know, I reviewed the offense last week, defenses this week. Have some other content for you there. You can join for a dollar VIP right now. Uh, if you choose to do so, lots of good stuff up there, not just for me, but from the other guys. Loads of mailbag questions to get to today. Um, lots of topics here uh, surrounding the South Carolina Gamecocks as we're heading into sort of a month where there'll be a lull uh, in a lot of ways with, with football. Uh, the coaching staff's going to take some time off, well-deserved time off. Um, that usually happens later in the summer, but with the COVID situation, uh, you know, you have a, a recruiting period that's going to start June 1st. And so, as we've been hearing, uh, Helma Grant had a great interview with Jessica Jackson, the on-campus recruiting coordinator on the Big Spur this week. June is going to be hectic. <laughs> and I've been looking at the official visit list, and, uh, boy, it's packed with a lot of significant players. Uh, and, and then that's not even counting the unofficial visits, the kids that come in camp. Uh, that get evaluated, that type of thing. So June is going to be a big-time football month. May, there'll be a little bit of a lull, but, uh, you know, we can get topical. We can start talking about the, the season and previewing the season and kind of looking at some other teams. I know Mark Schleyball from ESPN had his uh, way-too-early Metro Spring Top 25. And it's kind of interesting. A lot of mid-major schools in there, Louisiana, Coastal Carolina, uh, some of the darlings from last year. I'm curious to see how that holds up heading into this season because uh, last year was just so unique with the scheduling and things like that. But uh, we can get topical and start talking about depth charts, things like that. And then, of course, baseball. Uh, and then there's some basketball news that we're going to kick off with. Frank Martin was a guest on Sports Talk. And, you know, we've been sitting here talking about it's probably a good chance Jermaine Cousinard comes back. Maybe not so much with Keyshawn Bryant. Well, he says both uh, have told him they will be back at school June the 1st. So it has to happen before it happens. Uh, but I think when you look at that, if if Bryant and Kusinar both come back, and, and there's a lot of ifs here. And if, uh, you know, some of these transfers can uh, make it, uh, and play well. Chico Carter, A.J. Wilson, Eric Stevenson, James Reese, uh, whoever else they get. Uh, uh, their, their freshman guys, Devin Carter and Jacoby Wright, climbed the final 24-7 sports rankings at the end. One's a top 100 guy, one's a top 130 guy. Uh, Taquan Woodley is a power forward they also have coming in. Um, and you got Wildens Levesque, Trevon Monat, and technically still Javon Benson. I think a lot of people were expecting him to, to hightail it, but uh, he has not as of yet. And maybe even Seventh Woods coming back, who Seventh will not count towards the 13th scholarship limit because of the COVID year. 
Uh, Frank Martin also disclosing that he had a pulled groin. Uh, and really, you know, what I was told too was with Woods and Justin Manaya, who's trans- transferred to Providence, uh, specifically with those guys, their bodies just were not right the whole, the whole year, according to them. And, you know, maybe it affected their play. I don't think there's any downside to Seventh Woods returning. I I know he didn't play all that well this year, but, you know, I, I, I would expect, you know, if you're not taking up a scholarship spot, you know, you have a guy that's played college basketball for that many years that's actually pretty good on defense. I don't know. You know, we'll see kind of what happens. But I think if Cousinard and Bryant come back, that changes things. Now, Jermaine has to get back to who he was during the conference play in 2020. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, He was very hit or miss this past year. And then Keyshawn uh, was actually a bright spot, I think, for this past year's team. He really improved uh, his offensive game. Um, Getting back another year, if he can make similar improvement, he can can have a special season. But uh, I I think that's pretty good news. I mean, as bleak as it sort of looked – um, a few weeks ago, I, I think that, you know, when I don't think any of us expected these, these two guys to come back, uh, expected sort of an all new roster. You look at it now and you, you've got a blend of experience and, and some newcomers. Uh, obviously they have to adapt to the newcomers, even the transfers have to adapt to Frank Martin's system and his style of play. But with Stevenson and Wilson specifically, those guys are defensive guys. Um, so they probably shouldn't have a problem uh, with what Frank Martin wants to do. And uh, Coos and Arden Bryant have been among the best players on the team the last couple of years, so you got some uh, some building blocks there. So we'll see what happens. I, I do think that there's reason uh, to be more encouraged than maybe there was reason to be a couple of months ago. I'm still not you know, going to predict this team to be top four in the SEC, but – uh, they've returned less before and had more unknowns, uh, provided these two come back uh, in the past and finished much better than we thought under Frank Martin. So we'll see sort of what happens there. But that's basketball news for today and uh, sort of a surprise with Bryant. You know, Bryant's the the, the one we didn't expect. I think Cousinor was pretty much expected. Uh, football recruiting since I've last joined you, two commits. Braden Davis, the four-star quarterback from Middletown, Delaware, uh, doing some NFL draft notes. Delaware is the number seven state in the country for producing NFL talent per capita. So uh, Gamecocks have gotten a lot of players from Delaware lately. So there's another one. Uh, And then probably are in line to get to his teammate, the defensive end, down the road. But number five, dual-threat quarterback in the country for 24-7 sports composite rankings. Number one overall player in Delaware – uh, automatically was the highest rated player in the class and the quarterback, you know, quarterback's important. Uh, you know, they met, lost Gunner Stockton, missed on Tanner Bailey, um, had some other guys in the peripheral that, you know, like, like all drew all that I, you know, he was sort of leaning to Penn state pretty heavily during the whole thing. Gamecocks were going to have to prolong it, get him on campus. I don't know how serious that was. Tanner Bailey was a serious situation. Um, you know, so sometimes you, you, you kind of, go around the dial, so to speak, in quarterback recruiting, and you get to your guy. And Davis has a lot of upside, 6'5", 195 pounds, 215 pounds actually now. Uh, this is an old height and weight, uh, four, six in the 40, 
really good shuttle time, very athletic, uh, good arm, uh, big upside. Not a guy that I think can step in and play right away, but a guy that I think down the road has a high enough ceiling to, to play this position at a high level in the Southeastern Conference. And I'll just leave it at that. You know, we'll see what happens. There's a lot of, when you move down to the 2023 and 2024 class, a lot of in-state talent at quarterback coming up too. So uh, that position for South Carolina, I, I would describe it as solidified right now moving forward. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's really all you can say. You, you don't have a guy, you know, coming in that's a, you know, no-brainer game changer. You have guys that can become that. Uh, and so that's the situation moving forward, but you never want to be lean there. And then I look at the big picture here, <laughs> Colton Gauthier obviously had a good spring, uh, spring game. I thought, you know, he sort of struggled getting it off, um, when the team wasn't protecting him and that's to be expected from a young guy. Uh, you know, Luke Doty is, is tracking toward being the starter. You have Jason Brown, uh, technically for two more years. Uh, and so and then you got Davis coming in. So that's a, that's a positive thing. And then, like I said, there's a lot of in-state talent, 2023, 2024, that the Gamecocks are going to be right there for. So that position <laughs> from a recruiting standpoint and a future standpoint looks pretty good. Uh, the second commit was a surprise. Uh, sort of came on Monday, sort of came on Monday, did come on Monday, uh, Shane Beamer, the head coach, tweeting out a welcome home, and then we all waited until noon. Uh, and the Gamecocks flipped a player from Georgia, Donovan Westmoreland, outside linebacker, 6'1", 210, high three-star prospect per composite, number 30 player overall in Georgia, was committed to UGA. Um, talking to some people around UGA, you know, and, and look, this type of stuff happens in, in, in football recruiting. You know, sometimes schools – they don't drop a guy. They sort of don't talk to him a whole lot, back off. And, you know, that, that is what happened here. But I'm not going to take away from the commitment because obviously, you know, this guy can play some football and the Gamecocks need linebackers. And so, hey, one man's trash is another man's treasure, uh, so to speak. And, you know, Georgia, you, you look, six first-round draft picks from the state of Georgia in this year's draft, only one of them went to UGA and – that was Eric Stokes, who they developed and coached up from a three-star prospect. So, it, you know, that doesn't always mean, you know, the Georgia offer doesn't always mean individually uh, that players are going to be lesser or not good enough. That just is their evaluation. And when you sort of look at it over the years, there's a lot of players from Georgia that have left Georgia that have, Georgia's passed on that have been good. J.C. Horn's a prime example. Um and, and, you know, they can't take them all. And that's taking nothing away because uh, I know some Georgia fans sort of got on me. <laughs> uh, that's taking nothing away from that program and the way they recruit and the job Kirby Smart's done. He's 52 and 14 there. Uh, he's won the SEC East three times. First coach to win the East more than twice in a row since Steve Spurrier at Florida. Uh, you know, you, you, I, I don't want people to think, I'm out here being a huge homer and a dog hater and all that. That's not true. I have lots of friends that are Georgia fans and uh, certainly uh, wish them well. And, and, you know, when they play, they play Carolina or whatever. I don't, I don't sit there and, you know, pull against Georgia unless it means something, you know, on this end. So 
I, uh, I wanted to say that because I, you know, I, I called an idiot and everything else. And uh, I sort of mouthed back and said, well, they, they weren't, they were loving me when I overrated some of their players back in the mid two thousands. And uh, I can think of a few, but I can also think of a few players I overrated that went to Carolina and a few players I overrated went to Tennessee and underrated, you know, it's an inexact science. So I, I wanted to clear that up because I, I kind of felt bad. I was like, I'm not trying to be a homer here or upset the dog nation, but I think it's a heck of a pickup for South Carolina. Uh, Mike Peterson was the lead recruiter here. Jimmy Lindsay, that's his area. He deserves credit as well. They stayed after him. Um, and, and it's a nice surprise, you know, at a position of need. Uh, and you look at this four person class now, Davis and Westmoreland, and then Anthony Rose was a heck of a first pickup from Hallandale, Florida. Uh, and then I really like Grayson Maines, the offensive lineman from, Lambert High School in Sewanee in Gwinnett County, Georgia. You know, you watch his film, he's got a toughness about him, long arms. Uh, is a guy that I think can develop into a really good offensive lineman, really good evaluation there. Gamecocks have moved up in the national recruiting rankings to 36th, 11th in the SEC. So they've been kind of down in 14th uh, in the SEC because they don't have as many commits as some of these teams do. Uh, but they're up to 11th now ahead of Auburn, Tennessee, and Ole Miss. Uh, I guarantee you Auburn, Tennessee, and Ole Miss will not finish last in the league. <laughs> um, neither will South Carolina this year. Uh, but, you know, Auburn three commits, Tennessee three commits, Ole Miss two, uh, and all these other teams. You know, you, you've got a Mississippi State up there at four, but they've got 11 commits right now. Uh, and so that's that's kind of what's – throwing the rankings like they are. Alabama is seventh, by the way, in the SEC with six. You know that's not going to hold. Um, and so the Gamecocks are right where they should be uh, rankings-wise, I think, uh, when you're talking about recruiting. Uh, I mentioned the official visits and, and just the start of June. Man, oh, man. You know, you've got the June 7th visits are two guys I really like. Ramon Brown from Manchester high school in Midlothian, Virginia. That's the Richmond area. That's a place when Shane Beamer was at Virginia Tech, Georgia, and Oklahoma, all three. He recruited pretty well. Um, Montero Hardesty is after this guy uh, for the Gamecocks with Beamer heavily involved. Don't know that the Gamecocks lead. I, I know they're, they're in the top five, maybe fourth or fifth right now, but that's pre-visit. And I, I wouldn't rule the Gamecocks out simply because they're getting a visit and because of Beamer's connections with the school. And then Felix Hickson, a guy I think South Carolina's got a pretty good shot at, uh, 6'3", 285-pound defensive tackle from Jackson, Georgia. Uh, you watch his film. He's very strong and aggressive, uh, really good player, uh, I think. Three-star guy, but uh, big upside uh, out of the state of Georgia. I think if you want a comparison, and I'm going to quit doing this at some point, but uh, and this is not like a direct comparison. He's better coming out of high school, I think, than Kobe Smith was. Uh, and we remember Kobe Smith had a pretty good four-year career at South Carolina. Uh, then you go to the, the June 11th, and I'm not going to go through all the visits because the June 25th weekend's impressive as well. You got the Lake Gibson crew, which would be running back Jalen Glover, safety Javante McClendon, possibly five-star athlete Sam McCall, although that's not confirmed. Yeah, four-star offensive tackle Ryan Brubaker from Denver, Pennsylvania coming in. Really love that kid on the offensive line. Uh, a player that I think is on the rise, mid-three-star guy right now, but 6'3", 180. He ran 10.200 meter 
for Bishop Moore Catholic High School in Orlando. It's Chandler C.J. Smith. Georgia offers him the other day. Don't know how that impacts his recruitment, but uh, he's a guy Justin Stepp has been after from the beginning. I, I think that if you're looking at two names to attach to, okay, we're wide receiver recruiting. It's this big need. Uh, Chandler Smith and Antonio Williams from Dutch Fork would probably be two that you want to go ahead and attach. Uh, another wide receiver coming to town, four-star Peter Kikwata from Germantown, Maryland, Northwest High School. Really elusive guy, uh, 6'1", 170, a good player. Grayson Maines, the commitment's coming in. And then a player I really like, I don't think South Carolina's going to get him. I think he's going to go to Mississippi State because he's a legacy uh, Madison, Mississippi linebacker Stone Blanton, 6'2", 220. Uh, really like this guy on film. Uh, but he's 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 one of these players, you know, college football recruiting is still very much geographically oriented. Um, so it's hard sometimes to pull a kid out of a state that uh, where he has connections. Uh, and so it'll be hard for the Gamecocks to do this as well. But, you know, this, this kid's one you just shoot your shot with, I think, uh, you know. Uh, number six overall player in Mississippi, uh, 10th ranked inside linebacker prospect in the country, four-star guy. Uh, and so I, you know, looking at it, you sort of, you sort of think, wow, you know, and, and then look, I'll go, th- I'll go through the, the June 20, uh, June 25th guys as well. Cause they're, they're pretty exciting as well. You know, Chris Graves, an athlete. Uh, I don't know. South Carolina's looking at him at both ends or both sides of the ball. 6'1", 175 from Bishop Vero. In Fort Myers, if I'm not mistaken, that's Jordan Diggs School, or or where that's where Jordan Diggs played before he transferred. Uh, and so Chris Graves is coming in. Uh, Dominic James, a big four star kid out of IMG in Bradenton, uh, guys originally from Prattville, Alabama, uh, and he's coming in for a visit. And lots of people say the Gamecocks are in the thick of that thing as well, along with some Penn State, a little bit, um, maybe Florida. Uh, so, you know, he, he's kind of one of those guys. I mean, LSU, Ohio State are also in the mix, Oregon. Uh, and so we'll see what happens there. Very intriguing prospect. Four-star corner Keenan Nelson Jr. out of St. Joseph's Prep in Philly is visiting six-foot-one, 200-pound corner. Uh, here's a guy that's talked to J.C. Horn and Izzy McQuamu. They have some connections there. Highly interested. You know, can you get him out of Pennsylvania? That's the question. Katorian uh, Gray and – Pete Limbo uh, closed the deal on that one. DeArco Perkins McAllister is a three-star safety out of Nashville, Tennessee that's visiting. Uh, really active player. I think he's a stock-up guy. Uh, four-star corner. Uh, Nikkei Martin – Nikkei? I think Nikkei? N-I-K-K-I-I? I butcher these names sometimes, guys. I apologize. Out of Apopka, 5'11", 175, four-star corner. Uh, top 300 guy. Addison Copeland is a three-star – Receiver, bigger guy from Buffalo, New York that's coming in. Lots of Northeastern guys. Uh, and then Oscar Delp, Gamecock legacy, number one tight end in the country. Uh, from coming Georgia, West Forsyth High School. Uh, he's a guy, you know, the Gamecocks have to have to keep prolonging it with him. Georgia, I would still consider them the favorite, but yeah, he, he's a Gamecock guy. I mean, he grew up Gamecock fan as family in Columbia. Uh, I think what could really help with him um, unless they just turn it all, unless they flip it around during the visit, which they could do because um, Eric Kimry's done a heck of a job here is you prolong it. And then, then you get into the season and you start seeing Jaheim Bell and EJ Jenkins and Kevion Mullins and 
Nick Muse catch a bunch of passes, and then you say, hey, this is our offense. This is how we can use you. Uh, I think that would make a big difference. Now, Georgia's got a really good tight end coming back as well. It's going to be a big part of their passing game. Uh, I think his name's Darnell Washington uh, from Las Vegas. He's a big freak, big freaky guy. Um, so, Georgia's not going to take a back seat, I think, as far as tight end use goes. But I, I do think South Carolina has a story to tell there. And given his connections to the program, that'll be good. So this is a, you know, so far 14, 16 official visits scheduled for June so far. Uh, six from the state of Florida, three from Georgia, two from PA, one each from Maryland, Mississippi, New York, Tennessee, and Virginia. So that's a, that's a broad net. It's a little more wider net cast than normally is. Uh, critical series coming up for the Gamecock baseball team, Mississippi State. Uh, coming in. After the sweep at Ole Miss last weekend, and, and same old, same old. You know, the Gamecocks haven't been able to hit, hit the ball well enough. And Ole Miss, very good offensive team. Uh, their first baseman, I think, is a hero of mine now. <laughs> Somebody on the board said looks like they recruited him off the softball team. But uh, that guy, you know, it, it was kind of fun watching somebody like that play college baseball. I hadn't, I hadn't seen uh, – Hadn't seen that kind of deal since maybe uh, the Bob Horner era of the Atlanta Braves. But, you know, you, you look at it, and, and that's a tough one. You know, you swept Florida earlier this year, and then you got swept. Uh, so you're right there kind of teetering on the bubble of hosting. Uh, a series win this weekend I think would go a long way. Gamecocks did beat North Florida last night 7-6 to six, uh, for kind of the rebound midweek win. Uh, I think it's always good to win and, and stop the bleeding when there's a losing streak. And so – that's a good thing. And big one against Mississippi State. They're all going to be big from here on out. But, you know, this is another top ten type team coming in, uh, and the Gamecocks need to need to win it. Uh, that's all there is to it. This team, this baseball team this year, uh, I think they're good. I just don't think they're great. Um, and it doesn't mean that they can't catch fire and, and make a deep run in the NCAA tournament because baseball, that happens. You know, I don't – I think – when they went to the Supers under Kingston the first year, I don't know that anybody really expected that uh, going in before the uh, regional happened. And they, and they got a pretty favorable regional going to ECU and, and all that. But, uh, you know, I you don't know what's going to happen. But I, I just, you know, looking at the way this season's unfolded, that would be my take on it. I think I think it's good because I think the fan base needed a team to be good. You know, because baseball and I mean, excuse me, basketball, men's basketball and um, football were just the disasters this season. Uh, so you need something to feel good about. But is this team one of those that, that you look at? And you, you know, it's Omaha or bust. I don't think that's I don't think you can say that's where they are right now. Um, and it's just simply because, you know, the bats don't always come alive. And the pitching's great, really good and really deep. And and I think that could help them set them up for a playoff run. But, man, you, you don't score runs and you're playing good offensive teams. Uh, you're going to go down just like you did at Ole Miss. Uh, so that's the deal there. Uh, mentioned earlier, plenty of mailbag. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to switch to the mailbag. I love the mailbag because it kind of gives you guys a chance to be part of the show. Uh, obviously, it's a a uh, podcast and not a call-in show, uh, so that's uh, that's kind of what we do. Um, all, all that. So, okay. So we come in. Our Joey 
And, all right, so there's two ways to get in the, the mailbag. You can tweet to at the Big Spur Pod. We'll do those first. Uh, and then you can email inside the game guys at gmail.com. We'll get to those. There's a lot of them. Um, Joey says, JC, can you go into the detail to what the Hilton head coach's problem is with South Carolina? I know Hilton head is the capital of Ohio outside of Ohio case transplants, bring in their bias with them in this case. Okay. So that means, all right, is he from Ohio and uh, bringing a bias? no, um, and I'll just say this. I don't, I don't know that the guy has anything against the University of South Carolina. I just, you know, you look through the through the years, and most of the time when he has a player, he wants them to go to other schools out of state, namely big-name schools. I think in this case it's probably going to be in Notre Dame uh, with Snead. Um, and it happened with Puna Ford, and it's happening again now. It's just – and Puna Ford was surprising because that was during a time where South Carolina was putting, you know, defensive linemen in the first round. But uh, that's the case here. Clayton White has been recruiting hard, working the mom hard, working the family hard. Uh, I know he released the top five that did not include South Carolina. So uh, we'll see if if, if maybe a, a sneaky visit can happen or something and they get back in it, but that's just kind of the pattern. And, and you know, people can say what they want. When there's a pattern like that, it's a pattern. I mean, you, you can't deny it. Uh, the, the, those kids that play for this coach uh, end up going way far away, for, in most cases, for school. And that's just kind of how it is. So uh, I don't know that, that he has a problem with South Carolina. I just know that most of his kids do go out of state. And when that happens uh, over and over, you know, you, you kind of think, well, South Carolina doesn't have as good of a shot as other schools when recruiting them, uh, when recruiting there. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Gamecock Ricky uh, says, can you break down the three recruits we just picked up? And you're right. You know, I, I, I named the 2022 ones. Gamecock's got a third, Tyrese Ross. Uh, safety transfer from Washington State. Uh, he's a guy that is going to be critical for depth at safety. Uh, experienced guy, started 13 games at Washington State. Leach his last year there. I, I don't know that he jived with the new coaching staff, Nick Rolovich and those guys out there. Uh, Atlanta Westlake was his high school, so he's from Atlanta. Got some ties to Jacksonville, Florida as well. Uh, I like the way he comes up and hits you. I like the way he plays physical. Um, haven't seen enough of him in coverage to to really get a beat on that as far as, you know, his ability there goes. But uh, certainly a needed guy to throw in there and, and compete. Plus, he's got three years left. So, you know, he, even if he's not a world beater this year, you, you get him in the weight program. Because I, I do think he needs to get stronger if I have one evaluation point on him get him in the weight program, get him working, and then eventually he uh, he pans out for you, even if it's not this year. But they, they need help this year. Uh, and so he's a guy that I know that defensive coordinator Clayton White really liked uh, and all that good stuff. So the, that's the third guy, and I broke down, obviously, Smith and the other guy later. Uh, Mike says, at the Big Spur Pod, what facilities improvements should we be focused on for the next five years to improve? I know basketball needs a practice facility. I, yeah, and, and I think – I don't know what they want to do about basketball. Um, 
because you know when, when you talk about basketball facility you're, you're talking about both programs obviously and, and you have one program that's the best in the country right now and you got another that's you know been to the final four that's in a very competitive league that you know the other teams are not standing still you also in that sport have an issue uh on the men's side with the cla looking like it's half empty when it isn't <laughs> during games um and that affects your home court advantage and all that good stuff. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of options. You know, I, I think at the least, you know, they, they need to once, – once you get through the COVID thing, because they're going to have to catch up. And maybe eyeing the ESPN Disney deal with the new game of the week, which is going to bring, you know, 15, 20, 25 more. I've heard all kinds of numbers. I've heard as much as $30 million extra per school, probably 15 to 20 million per school more into the TV coffers, you know, at that point, uh, I think you look at, you know, what do you, what's the next step for basketball? Um, The CLA is going to be 20 years old. I think it opened in 0203. Uh, So you're going to have to maybe do some upgrades there. I I know they got a new scoreboard and some other stuff that, you know, bells and whistles. Do do you want to build a new, Taj Mahal practice facility where the Coliseum is or somewhere. I don't know. Um, Cause that, that's the other question. Where do you put it? You know, right now the Coliseum where they're practicing is very convenient because it's close to six fifty Lincoln where they live and everything's just sort of right there. If you build it on the athletics village grounds, then they're going to have to go up there, you know, have to cross assembly and all that good stuff. So, you know, do you do that? Um, uh, you, you know, I, I, <laughs> call me crazy. Um, but you know, I, and, and I don't know if, you know, if who, who's going to want to do this. And I, I don't, I don't know that this is very realistic. This is probably just me uh, dreaming. And I, I rarely have like opinions about this. I think the, 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 the most radical thing I've had is, you know, put a lazy river in, uh, at the long ops building because, you know, you have a lot of summer official visits in Columbia and it's hot. And, you know, that used to work against the Gamecocks a little bit. So, uh, you know, that's kind of the most radical thing I've had as far as facilities go. But do you sit there and just say, all right, we have the CLA. It's a big revenue producer because of concerts and activities. We love having graduation there uh, for the university. It's, you know, it's a situation where if you really tried, you could probably get a tenant in there as a, like a minor league hockey team or something. Um, it really serves the whole Midlands. Do you say and admit defeat and say, all right, well, that's, that's, that's good for all that. And, and it's going to make us money, but we need something for basketball. And do you take the Coliseum and, and turn it into a state of the art nine to 10,000 seat arena? Like they've got at Auburn. Uh, and build a practice facility onto it to where, you know, it's brand spanking new and you're ready to roll. I mean, do you do that with a 20-year-old building and and say, all right, we'll we'll see you later? Um, And I don't know. I I just – that that would be kind of a radical plan. Uh, In long term, I think it would solve a lot of stuff. I mean, can – could you imagine, you know, and when you do that, you bring back the the severely raked seating and – yeah, you make it a home court. Um, I don't think that's going to – I don't think there's any chance that happens maybe in my lifetime. 
But uh, I think the other the other idea is okay. You know, we need to redo the men men's seating arrangements at the CLA uh, because look, the bottom line is yeah, the CLA with how it's structured now for men's basketball with the seating arrangement, it's not ideal a lot of the time. But if you remember, they hosted the regional there and everybody just went gaga over what a great basketball facility it was because it was packed, especially in the lower bowl. When you when you when you even get it packed in the lower bowl, it's a great place for basketball. Um and so that's what they need to do there and then build a practice facility. Uh, you know, keep going. If you want to keep using the Coliseum, fine. Just uh, you know, probably need to sink more money into it for football. Uh, just keep on going. I mean, <laughs> uh, what's next at Williams Bryce? Is it going to be um, a terrace seating in the north end zone where the Floyd building is with a beer garden? And, you know, I've, I've heard some people talk about that and more premium seating on that end of the stadium above the students. Uh, will you, would you move the student? I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I know this LED lighting thing. Uh, that Georgia and Bama have. Uh, that's on the, the menu coming up. That may not happen this year, but it's going to happen at some point. Obviously, they need a new sound system. I, I think a lot of the things with the with the football facilities, with the exception of, you know, continuing to upgrade the, the recruiting areas at the stadium and things like that, are going to be more fan and game day focused on the interior of the stadium uh, because they've kind of done everything else. You know, you, you've got your indoor facility now. You've got brand-new practice fields out there. You've got your football ops building now all at, in one spot. Uh, and then you have some premium seating you've already added with the different club levels and stuff, which I've heard are extremely nice uh, and and all that. You know, so, so what are the other things? You know, well, you know, obviously the sound system needs to work, and I think – I think the person that operates it needs work too uh, at the, at the football uh, stadium. I think that, you know, if you're going to expand uh, premium seating into the North end zone and gets, get kind of a second zone over there, I don't think it's going to be like the zone. I don't think they're going to enclose it, but you could have some nice terrace seating and, and like a deck, you know, cause that's the way it's going now, uh, you know, is, is less seats, more premium areas, their revenue boosters, and fans, you know, modern fans tend to like it. I mean, that's that's kind of – I mean, you, you look at Florida's master plan for the swamp, and uh, gosh, I remember in 2010 I went down there. I was a big boy back then uh, sitting in the visitor section. I had to turn my body sideways to fit. <laughs> now, part of that's my fault, too many cheeseburgers, but uh, part of it too – was that 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 all those wooden bleachers were just like terribly uncomfortable? Where well, they're going to gut all that and put like theater style seating in the swamp? It's going to decrease capacity, but it's going to be nice. And so that's that's kind of the future there. So that that's kind of what I see facility wise as happening. I don't know what necessarily baseball needs. I'd have to talk to Whittle about that, but I have heard they do need some things you know, to keep up with everybody else, you know, and this is how it is. You keep up with the Joneses, man. It's, it's uh, Auburn's about to open a big football ops building. That'll probably, you know, be better than South Carolina's, you know, and that's, that's just kind of how the arms race works in college athletics. Um, Founders park, obviously is only 12 years old, very, very nice baseball facility. Boy, when the crowd's rocking there, it's, it's a great spot, but, you know, facilities-wise, do they need some things for baseball? 
Uh, and then there's other sports too, but you know, I'm sure you weren't talking about tennis and all that, but it's, <laughs> it's uh, that that's got to be taken care of as well. But I, I do think there's some options for basketball. They really need to explore. Um, like I said, I, I think get building a new arena uh, that makes more sense is probably a pipe dream. Uh, I do think there's probably a way you could maximize revenue with the CLA uh, and heck, you could even if you if you do host an NCAA tournament, you can still host it at the CLA uh, because of seating and and then have a nicer place for men's basketball and, and women's basketball. But you know, I, will that happen? I don't know. I mean, it's just that's just shoot, I mean, like hundred million dollar arena <laughs> if, you, if you if you build a new one. So maybe that's not going to happen. But I mean, obviously the, the the practice facilities, the player areas, that kind of thing continue continue to improve that for hoops uh you know they deserve it but it's uh you know we'll see what happens we'll see what happens i, I think football though is going to be more about game day and all that at least for the time being now there's going to have some, something's going to come up to where some school is going to have something for their players and south carolina is going to want to you know redo it and, and copy it or, or have one of their own uh, and that'll happen but that's what's next uh, in my opinion, or what's needed uh, next five years, you know, that's it. Uh, Bullheaded says, hey, JC, wanted to get your thoughts on playoff expansion. Just watch Josh Payton. He was against it for numerous reasons. Me personally, I'd like to see it go to eight. I don't buy the logic. It would ruin the regular season. College football fans are loyal regardless. Well, I don't know. I know Josh isn't an, 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 a playoff expansion guy. And I, uh, I respect that because I don't know that I have been myself. Um, I've always thought through the years, heck, that there's never been a situation. Because what used to drive me crazy is uh, before the BCS, you had the Big Ten and the Pac-12 just um, <laughs> doing their own thing every year. And, and I'm like, well, why are they even? I mean, because that's like you should you should basically crown two national champions then, and they did many times um, because they don't you know they don't have to go play the SEC champ or the ACC champ, and then the BCS came along and they all got involved, and you know then you had situations like Auburn that year in two thousand four going undefeated, and they eke, eke out Oklahoma uh, to go play SC down there which I don't I don't think Oklahoma deserved it to be honest and SC blew them out of the water 55-19 so you know let's do a playoff well once they did the playoff 100% of the you know <laughs> the attention went on those four playoff teams um and then you got kids opting out of bowls now and, and it just is diminished the rest of it and, and Nick Saban even said this, that like he was against more playoffs because that's going to make the bowls more meaningless. And he doesn't like that because he likes the bowls because he's kind of a college football purist like me. That said, I, I just don't know how, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how you get around it without going backward in terms of other fan bases start. And I'm not talking about South Carolina right now. Uh, I think Gamecock fans, realize that there's there's a you have your own set of issues right now you, you got to get back to beating missouri and kentucky and tennessee uh and you got to get back to the liberty bowl 
you know, before you can start worrying about playoffs. Um, now that said, had, had they had eight back when Spurrier was winning 10, 11 games a year, I think the Gamecocks would have gotten to a playoff at some point. Uh, I don't, I'd have to break it down to say which season exactly that would have happened. Probably 2013 because the Gamecocks beat like a bunch of really good teams. But, uh, so you look at it and, um, you know, I, I think like your Florida's of the world uh, or, you know, once Texas comes back or Oregon or SC, you know, the teams that, you know, feel like they always have a shot but haven't made it, you know, that that's tough. I mean, because you basically have how it's set up now, you know, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, maybe a random SEC team if they have a good year like Georgia and LSU, Notre Dame. Um, and that's that. Because I think I think with the playoff, with the 14 playoff, they still are like looking at it like like the old BCS. Like in other words, like Notre Dame goes undefeated a couple of years ago. They played nobody and they got waxed by Clemson in the Cotton Bowl. You know, to me, that's not that that's kind of using the old standards. Well, if you go undefeated, you get that because that means something. Well, if you're talking about a playoff, you know, like the NCAA tournament in basketball, if you go undefeated but you play nobody, you're not going to be a number one seed. You're going to be kind of, you know, number two or, you know, maybe the fourth number one or something like that. Um, Although Gonzaga was number one overall this year, but I think they had some tough non-conference games or something. But anyway, I uh, – so to keep it interesting, do you take it to eight? Now – Going to eight, I'm against giving the the group of five champion an automatic bid or whatever, even if they're undefeated, because you're going to get to a point where one one of these years you're going to have an SEC West team like Auburn. Uh, Auburn's going to go ten and two. Their two losses are going to be to twelve and zero Alabama and eleven and one LSU, who are the top two teams in the country. And they're not going to win a division, and they're not going to. But they're going to be. They're going to beat everybody else on their schedule, which is a tougher schedule than Central Florida or whoever has played. And you're going to put undefeated App State, Central Florida, whoever, Coastal, whoever. You can put them in the playoff over ten and two Auburn, which theoretically, in my hypothetical here, had lost two close games to the top two teams in the country. So, so you tell me that's fair when. You know, App State's toughest team they've played may be East Carolina. So that's that there. Um, and so that so how they do it's important. I do think if you go to eight uh, and you make conference championship bids automatic. So, and I'm in favor of that. So, so what that does too is, you know, because you talk about the same teams every single year. This gives the other the, the teams from the other division which have basically been the Washington generals (laughs) for the powerhouse teams. That gives them a shot because, okay, so let's say Northwestern had beaten Ohio State in the Big Ten title game last year. They're not going to the playoff. You know, somebody else is going to sneak in there, um, be it Florida or whoever. Uh, You know, Colorado pulls an upset in the Pac-12. They're not going to the playoff. You know, Pittsburgh – miraculously upsets Clemson in the ACC championship game. They're not going to the playoff. What this does is you play that championship game, that's a de facto playoff because you know you win and you're in. And I think that's that expands the excitement because, 
you know, right now what's happening is these other division winners are just showing up, happy to be there. And, like, even if they win, it, it, you don't go any further. You just get a nice bowl. Well, that ups the stakes a bit in the conference championship games. It allows us to keep those and makes them even more exciting. Uh, and then you got something that, you know, more fans feel like they touch the playoff when they have a game that can allow them to advance. Uh, and, and so that's that that would be my argument for going with eight. But I, I certainly see Josh's point and all that good stuff. And, you know, I, I think they have to do something. I mean, you can almost also make an argument for, all right, you want to keep the bowls. That's fine. Let's uh, – Let's go back and, and play a four-game playoff after the Bowls and take it through to Super Bowl weekend and just make January a playoff month. Now, you're going to get a lot of arguments against that. But, you know, you add the Bowl in to uh, to what a team has to do, and, and maybe that's different. Now, so that, but then, you know, at the same time, then I, what I said about conference championship games would be kind of moot because then it doesn't matter. So – you know, we'll see kind of what happens there. But that's a good question. Bullheaded, I really appreciate it. Boy, inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. Lots of uh, lots of questions here. Got two in from Seth. He says, JC, how does a defense with three draft picks in the back seven plus future draft picks in the Gamecock 2020 defense not perform better? It said that Muschamp's scheme was maybe too complicated. Do you think that was the issue? Or is there an effort on Muschamp's part to simplify, but some of these guys aren't as talented as we think they are? Thanks for the podcast. Love it. I, I, I think individually they're talented. Um, I think Izzy McQuamu getting drafted is based on upside and a potential shift to safety. I don't know that he's a corner. I, I think the NFL folks like that he can play corner. Uh, in a pinch, because the, the more you can do, the better you are, especially at six four. But I think he's he's not a guy that's going to set it on fire right away in the NFL. I think Ernest Jones is a guy that can play ten years in the league at middle linebacker. He's that kind of guy at middle linebacker in the league. And obviously, J.C. Horn, um, you know, until he starts getting beat on a consistent basis, <laughs> uh, he he hadn't been beat, you know. And so those guys are good. And then, you know, Jamie Robinson, from what I hear down at Florida State, he's they think he's their best player, definitely NFL guy. John Dixon certainly has an ability to do that as well. Um, and then, you, you know, whoever's left over too, Cam Smith of the world, those guys are, are pretty good. So, uh, you know, I think you also got to consider last year nobody was good on defense, but it got amplified at Carolina. I, I do think the defense was too complicated. I, do, I, I don't know that – uh, I, I think that playing together is important uh, when you're talking about a secondary communication. Hey, I got this guy, I got that guy. And, and it, it probably did get a little complicated, but it also uh, there's probably some slackness as far as communication goes. And, and I, I think about that long pass Ole Miss completed, the one where Kevin threw his clipboard in the air. You know, that, that, that screams communication issue on the back end. Maybe not, but uh, – that's communication more than talent. I do think that the Gamecocks are going to be in good shape with a, a different scheme this year, and, and the players seem to like it and and all that. But, I mean, I don't know. You know, as far as simplifying it goes, it, it looked to me as the season went on, they got more and more simple. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, that didn't really work out a whole lot either. 
Um, Seth goes, take nothing away. He's got another one here. Take nothing away from Izzy McQuamu. Anytime a player gets drafted, it's awesome for the player school and fan base. But do you think he was more deserving of being drafted than Sidarius Hutcherson? Personally, I thought Sidarius had a better career. Showed he could play multiple spots on the O-line at a high level where Izzy had some ups and downs. Bucks are getting a good one as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, just in my opinion, player to player. I thought Hutcherson would be a draft pick. I, I do think the Bucks have gotten a good one. Um, you know, I think he's got a uh, a lot of versatility. Uh, I, I think he needs to clean up some things fundamentally, but the pros will get that out of him. Uh, and so we'll see uh, we'll see what happens there. But uh, yeah, I'm with you, Seth. Thanks for the email, by the way, Cartwright. Hey JC, I have not been, I have not, haven't not been listening or ignore you. Just haven't had any questions. I had a thought about EJ Jenkins the other day. I think it's really interesting. They've been repping him at tight end a lot. Obviously, I know he's big and can play tight end, but I was under the impression we're almost loaded at tight end and need help at wide receiver. Do you think it could be that we feel pretty good at wide receiver internally, or is it because Jenkins is maybe too slow for wide receiver? Didn't seem like the best route runner. Obviously, we saw in the spring game that he's talented and has ball skills. So maybe it's just moving him around to get the ball in his hands. Curious of your thoughts. That's exactly the last sentence is exactly what it is, Cartwright. Um, I don't know that it. You know, you ever heard the old term "show your hand"? I, I don't think it's a bad thing that you list Jenkins and and Jaheim Bell as tight end slash receivers or H backs on the roster because what this offense, from what I'm told and what you can see in the spring game, is designed to do is match up issues. And you want to get the defense of the right personnel package, and then you want to throw it to your guy. Um, and so I, I, I honestly think that Jenkins and Bell may be the two best wide receivers on the team, even though they're listed to tight end. That's right now. Um, I think there are some guys at tight end. I mean, excuse me, at wide receiver that could step up and help. Jalen Brooks comes to mind. Xavier Leggett was out, so they don't know what he can do if he can take a step forward. Rico Powers. Obviously, DeCarrie Joyner had a good spring. But right now, you know, if you watch the spring game and based on some feedback, you look, who are the guys that are going to go make the big-time plays um, in the passing game? And, and Jaheim Bell and E.J. Jenkins, to me, are at the top of that list. Uh, and so I wouldn't worry so much about what they're listed as. Um, I, don't, I don't think they're going to sit there and get <laughs> – and. Um, you know, 12 personnel and have Jenkins on attached on the edge blocking all day. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Um, I think that uh, you're going to see him move all over. And the same with Jaheim Bell. I mean, you know, Jaheim's, Jaheim's obviously different than EJ because he can, he can carry the ball from scrimmage too. So, you know, that they're, that's what they're going to have to do this year is find creative ways to get the ball in the hands of the playmakers they have. And so that's it. So I, I wouldn't worry about getting pigeonholed into what they're listed as on, as on the roster. That's what's going to happen. Also, he said, couldn't help but feel we were playing defense with one hand tied behind our back during the spring game. I know we're trying to keep it as simple to, as possible. It was interesting to watch. I think they wanted to make sure the offense could score. The, the defense was extremely vanilla. I mean, if the defensive linemen weren't up there winning one-on-ones or beating double teams, there was no pass rush. There was no – Stunting. There was no. I mean, I don't know even know how they disguised any coverages. Uh, very simple game plan on defense, and of course, 
you know, when the offense lines up and runs it with Zaquandre White right up their gut. First, you know, you start to get worried about the run defense, but you know, when you're just when you're just kind of playing one-on-one football and you're playing a pretty good offensive line, you know, you're you're probably going to get blocked. I mean, that's that's just kind of how football is. But yeah, you're right about that. Um like I but you know, I'll back up and say Will there, you know, is there a slight concern about stopping the run this year on defense? Yeah, of course. Uh, because of the personnel at linebacker, I think they need to get some guys back from from, from injury uh, big time. You know, so so I don't know that you you walk away from that going, ah, they were just simplifying. I, I think that I think that, that may prevent you from having an overreaction to it, like some people overreacted that entire game. But uh uh, I don't think that, you know, looking at it going, ah, they're going to be fine against the run. Ah, they got to get healthy at, at linebacker, and you got to have some guys improve their level of play. All right. So Keith says, I'm sure in recent years the scale tips heavily towards Clemson, but seeing that Trevor Lawrence was their first ever number one draft pick, maybe th- think the gap is, is not as big since South Carolina's had two number one draft picks. Can you speak to how the teams compare when it comes to NFL draft selections? Clemson's had big, big drafts um, lately because they've had a big, big team and big, big runs and really big, good players. South Carolina has not. Um, But when South Carolina was rolling under Spurrier, so to speak, they put seven seven guys in the draft, I think two years in a row. Uh, Overall, I didn't break down Clemson's total numbers. I broke down South Carolina's in-state numbers and Clemson's in-state numbers. And South Carolina's actually put more in-state players in the draft the last 21 years or whatever since 2000 than Clemson has. 36, this close, 36-32. Both schools do a really good job of taking players that are not highly recruited from within the state and turning them into NFL players. Um, as far as the gap goes talent-wise between the two schools, there's a gap there. <laughs> I think it's obvious. Uh, that doesn't mean that in certain situations, South Carolina can't, can't couldn't have been more competitive in some of the games they've played. Um, I think in 2018 when the Gamecocks, you know, got it going on offense that night at Death Valley, I mean – you look at who was actually playing for the Gamecock defense that night, you're not going to stop Clemson uh, or anybody really with that kind of personnel. So had there not been for the injuries, maybe Carolina holds them a couple of times and it's closer than a 21 point game. I, I still think the 2017 game was disappointing because South Carolina is better than that, you know, than than just getting blown out by Clemson at home. Um, But I think South Carolina did not play with poise. Uh, and I think some injuries on offense, uh, Shai Smith was out that game, caused them to not have much speed. But it also, uh, in my opinion, you know, they didn't really have a plan to compensate for it. And, you know, obviously the offensive coordinator got fired right after that. But, um, you know, just th- thinking back to it, those, those are the two, you know, 2017, 2018. Obviously, by the time the Clemson-Carolina game in 2019 rolled around, Gamecocks, you know, the season was over. They had mailed it in. They put up, you know, the the, the goal line stand was nice. Holinsky completed to pass to Shai Smith for 21 yards on the first play. And then that was about it for the Gamecocks <laughs> that day. Uh, they just couldn't stop them uh, or whatever. And, and then uh, the offense was actually going nowhere. Uh, and then, the you know, the first year 
the 56 to seven game up there was uh, that Carolina had no chance in that one. Um, but there is a gap and, and you have to admit that there's still a gap. Um, Clemson comes to Columbia this year. Uh, unfortunately, when you look at that matchup way, way down the road, South Carolina's strength on their offense is going to be running the ball. Clemson may have the best run defense in the country. <laughs> you know, they, they return everybody from that defense. Some monsters on the D line, good players at linebacker. Uh, you know, Brent Venables loves to kind of sell out to stop the run. So the matchup right now, and we're obviously six months away from that game. Uh, the matchup right now does not favor the Gamecocks yet again, but it's in Columbia. And we'll see, you know, we'll see if uh, Shane Beamer has a little bit better luck uh, against the Tigers than Muschamp. And like I say luck. I'll say better fortune because I, I don't I don't know I think Muschamp just got beat by them every single time you know very few positive moments in the Clemson game for him during his uh, tenure at South Carolina so you know we'll see what happens we'll see what happens should be a heck of an atmosphere in Columbia I mean since they didn't get to play last year it's good to see the game coming back but um, yeah there is a gap is it a gap that can close over time yeah and, and how you do that is you you got to start taking care of what you can take care of. Yeah, I mean, Clemson lost to South Carolina five years in a row. But meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, uh, you know, they're building their program, you know, and, and they're they're making sure they win ACC games and division titles and ACC championships when they can. And, you know, when Florida State was really good, they obviously couldn't beat them. They beat everybody else besides Florida State and Carolina, and, and they they you know get an SEC team like LSU in a bowl and upset them or upset Ohio State, and and then that helped them in recruiting, and they kept building. You know, recruits don't care as much about the Clemson South Carolina game as fans. Uh, I think that's obvious. Recruits care about a lot of other things and, and they care if you're winning. So, so what the game got, you know, you want to start thinking about closing the gap on Clemson, you know, beat Missouri, beat Kentucky, beat Tennessee. Don't lose to Vanderbilt. And they haven't lost to Vanderbilt in a long time, but uh, you know, when you get North Carolina again, you know, beat them, you know, don't lose to Appalachian state at home. You know, that those are all things the Gamecocks from a performance standpoint need to clean up quickly. Um, because those are the types of things that, you know, you can handle. I mean, Clemson's one of the best programs in the country. It's bitter to accept that from a Gamecock perspective. But you, you can say, all right, well, you know, they're just not good enough this year. And But, hey, you, you, you start losing. You lost to Missouri two years in a row. That that streak against Kentucky, as, as positive as I am, about the ability of Mark Stoops and, and, and as impressed as I am with that program, if you're South Carolina, that's embarrassing. Six out of seven <laughs> to the Wildcats. And, you know, time not too long ago, Gamecocks beat them 10 years in a row. So th those are the types of things within the division and, and kind of within the region that Carolina's got to start taking care of, uh, you know, before I think – you know, any kind of closing of the gap against Clemson is going to happen. That said, I'm not saying that, you know, Clemson can't come out and have their game that they have once in a blue moon where they really struggle and Carolina plays out of their mind and, and wins the game. I can't rule that out. It's a rivalry. Um, we haven't seen any signs of that, but there's a new coaching staff in town and, you know, we'll see. But uh, 
anything can happen in one game. But if you're talking about closing the gap as a program, uh, you know, that's a, that's a little bit different story. But thanks for the email, Keith. Got another one here for from you, and I certainly appreciate that. Uh, Two-part question. What external coach do you believe contributed the most to Will Muschamp getting fired? Kirby Smart, Dabo Swinney, Mac Brown, or someone else? What internal? All right, so that this is this is all right. So I'm going to answer this first one. This is a good question. I think Mac Brown, because <laughs> I think okay, that game against North Carolina goes differently. Let, let's say they don't give up the 200 yard drives. They hold on and win. Bentley's not throwing it at the end zone at the end and getting hurt. They win that ball game. North Carolina at that point with with how they don't go to a bowl that year. It's going to be harder for them to get recruiting momentum. South Carolina probably goes on, um, you know, with Bentley at quarterback. Uh, I doubt he makes the mistakes against Missouri that led to that debacle. I doubt with Bentley at quarterback, they lose to App State. That's three more wins. That's seven and five. Yeah, you do that. And then on top of losing that game, you look up and all of a sudden, you know, whereas when North Carolina was – before Mac Brown got there, I mean, you know, you, you needed to go beat NC State for most of these top guys in North Carolina. NC State was dominating them on the recruiting trail. Well, now it's not that way. North Carolina's not only boxing South Carolina out, they're boxing everybody out. And, and w- if you could have done some things to prevent that, maybe some recruits come your way, that type of thing. But then, you you, you know, you look up at it and you're like, man, you know, that's, that's, that's tough because South Carolina needs to be able to recruit North Carolina. And – what makes it tougher on Beamer now is, you know, Shane Beamer, uh, you know, the state of Virginia sort of in flux. Justin Fuente is not Frank Beamer. He does not, you know, th- there's not a lot of kids beating down the door to go to Virginia Tech right now. Uh, UVA is UVA. Bronco Mendenhall kind of goes and finds his guys. Um, a lot of kids are leaving that state. Northern Virginia, Richmond, and especially the 757. Well, if you look at North Carolina, UNC and the job they've done in the 757, the Tar Heels are now the team uh, that's getting those guys out of the 757. And <laughs> so, so you start looking at North Carolina and you're like, well, they're getting a bunch of guys in state. And then, you know, you look at their commitment list this year and it's two guys from the 757, a guy from Colonial Heights, Virginia, and then a kid from Shelby, and then they're in the game for just about everybody else in North Carolina. Um, so, you, so you start to look at what they've done and how they've kind of, you know, closed it off talent-wise. Um, you know, last year's class for North Carolina was 14th in the country, very in-state heavy. Uh, and then the 2020 class, uh, they got two elite guys out of Virginia, Tony Grimes being one of them. And so, yeah, you, you sort of look at it and, you know, they're not only uh, a factor with the five-star, four-star guys in state, but then they – which is, you know, North Carolina produces its share, but they're also able to go into Virginia and compete with the best players in that state. And you start combining those numbers, it's going to be a pretty big roster. Uh, Dre Bly, uh, who's a recruit or a recruiter, assistant coach there is – a big reason for their success in Virginia. So that that's a big challenge for South Carolina just because of, you know, when North Carolina's not up like this, 
you know, they're, they're not, they're still getting some guys from in-state, but there's a lot of other guys leaving. Now, not all of them came to South Carolina, but, you know, some of them did. But, you know, Dabo, did he impact Will Muschamp? Nah, so, you know, Muschamp actually won some recruiting battles against Clemson, which I don't think people expected in-state. Uh, obviously, the performances against those teams were not good uh, when Muschamp was there. But you know, I, don't, I don't know that Dabo – Dabo probably put some unspoken pressure on every any coach at South Carolina in football right now. Uh, and I don't think Kirby did at all. I think um, just the fact Muschamp was able to go in there and beat him one time was was interesting. What internal coach do you believe contributed most to Will Muschamp getting fired? Kurt Rober, T-Rob, Brian McClendon, or someone else. I think it's got to be McClendon because – and, he, look, he's doing a good job out at Oregon. I don't know what happened at South Carolina. Um but recruiting at his position was just bad. It was just bad, okay? Okay? It was bad, okay? <laughs> I've been watching too much South Park lately. Um, and, it, and, you know, it's, it's a position where maybe, you know, when you talk about guys being bad recruiters or – I don't want to say – because he's not a bad recruiter. I, I, guys not getting it done on the recruiting trail. What gets you is not necessarily – the guys you you don't sign, you know, the highly rated battles that you lose or whatever. Uh, like McClendon losing his nephew to Georgia. Ah, uh, you know, as an offensive lineman, and that guy's going to be pretty good too, but you, you kind of look at it, you know, it's a Georgia kid going to Georgia. Let's be realistic. The, the problem is when you looked at the receiving core last year and you had one guy in Shai Smith, and then you had a kid from in-state at Virginia who was freshman all ACC – uh, you had a kid at Tennessee in Hyatt that they passed on, you know, catching a nine route for 75 yards and a touchdown against Bama. Obviously could have helped some. Um, you know, you have a guy that went to Virginia Tech that was pretty good they passed on. You, you know, you start looking around, you know, the kid at Boston College was not an in-state kid, but was a Zay, you know, Zay Flowers, I think is his name, uh, was a kid Arturo Freeman had teed up and ready to roll for Carolina, and they passed and then you look and you see who he did sign. And so those are the types of decisions, especially especially when you got layups, when you got guys that are in-state or guys that you can definitely go get that are demonstratively better than the players you maybe went out of state and got. That That's recruiting failure. And I think that because that position was so limited last season and, you know, just couldn't get anything going – you know, that stunk. Now, I'd like to dig in further to Travaris Robinson a little bit. And, you know, I, I never get a straight – got a straight answer on it. But, but you know, last year's defense, when it imploded, was was T-Rob calling that defense or, or was Muschamp? Because Muschamp started calling the defense in 2019 and it got better. That's kind of like Steve Spurrier letting Junior just – get shut out every game and that never happened. You know, once junior was struggle spur, he'd take it back over. So, and, and I don't know that answer. Um, I would assume both of them are calling it. And and I would assume that, you know, maybe T-Rob had some different ideas because the Missouri game was one of their better defensive games, but uh, that would be interesting. But I, I think overall, um, if you're looking at one of those three, you'd probably have to have to say McClendon just because it was, you know, his position just was lacking. And you look around the country and there's guys that could have definitely helped that you could have signed 
uh, that could have changed the, you know, changed the game. Like, say Flowers, game game changer, you know. So, anyway, thanks for the double shot of questions, Keith. Appreciate it. Noah says, JC, hope all is well. With your, this year's draft over, which under-the-radar game cuts do you think have the best chance of being drafted next year? Depends on who comes out. Um, You know, as far as the guys that could come out, that if they have big years, will most likely – that have a chance. Um, Kevin Harris and Zach Pickens come to mind. I mean, and with running backs, you know, they have a shelf life. So in other words, if Kevin comes back, has another fantastic year, you know, I I think he should go because I I think that when you're a running back, you only have, you know, so much time he'd be draft eligible. Uh, I, I, I just think, you know, that that's, that's a smart move on his part. Um, It's what's kind of surprising about Najee Harris uh, at Alabama being there four years is, you know, and I think he made himself some money because I think he played himself into the first round. But, you know, a lot of times running backs don't do that because, it, again, it's a shelf life. Uh, they don't always draft running backs that high. You have to have some kind of special dynamic. But, uh, you know, so Kevin Harris is one. Zach Pickens is the other. I think, you know, you kind of see signs of Pickens uh, really starting to pick it up, no pun intended. Uh, if he has a big, big year, you know, I could see him going because, you know, he's a guy that obviously is a big defensive lineman with that kind of athleticism uh, can make some things happen. If not, he'll be back. Obviously, I think that the guy that's going to get talked about is J.J. Enigbare. Uh, and it's just because, look, J.J. is not a perfect player. He's a guy that's, uh, you know, people say he's got to work on the run. I agree. You know, work on helping stopping the run. He gets sucked in and stuff sometimes. Those are fundamental things he needs to improve on which I think he can. But I also think this, I, I, I don't think you draft defensive ends because they're good against the run. I think you, you look at some of the guys that were drafted, especially towards the end, the guy from Houston, some other, it's all about pass rush because pass rushing is 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 just a rare skill. Um, and Enig Barre is an elite pass rusher. And so I, I think he's got a chance if you want to put money on like one guy. Now the offensive lineman, who knows? You know, I mean, I, I think Eric Douglas has a – I think all of them, all of those guys starting uh, have a chance to get drafted. Will they? I don't know. I think all of them will be draft eligible next year too. Uh, you know, Turner Town is going to have to have a huge year. Uh, Jalen Nichols would have to have a big year, huge, to get drafted. Eric Douglas, I think, will get drafted as a center as long as he plays as well this year as he did last year. Jovan Gwynn certainly is a brawler. Uh, you know, his height may affect him a little bit. And then Dylan Wanham obviously has some skills. He needs to kind of take it up a notch. But, um, you know, Nick Muse will probably be drafted. Uh, you know, and then like, a, and before people start quoting me on this and saying that I said that all five offensive linemen will be drafted, I said all five have a chance. Uh, and they do, a chance. I, I, I would be surprised if all five got drafted. But I, I do think that uh, they do all have a shot. So those are the guys kind of that I'm thinking. As far as former Gamecocks go, Jamie Robinson, I think, will be drafted relatively high next year as long as he plays well at FSU. All right, Justin, final question of an epic mailbag. Hey, JC, I saw that according to a Panthers insider, Shy Smith fell to the sixth round because of some character issues early in his career at South Carolina. I heard Shy confirm it as well. I don't recall him getting in trouble for anything. He was considered a third-round draft pick by most experts. Could you be more specific as to what he did to make him fall that far? 
Now, like if I knew exactly what he did, I would not repeat it just because I'm a big believer these days that, you know, when you're young, you make mistakes or, or even like when you're me and it was, you know, a month ago, you make mistakes <laughs> and, and mistakes are sort of in the past. And you, you should not have a scarlet A that you wear around. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was. I, I knew that he didn't always work very hard and he kind of liked to go home and, you know, kind of liked to party, but that, you know, he came to campus as a freshman though. And there were, there were no issues. It was kind of like after freshman, you know, between 2017 and 18 kind of thing. Uh, and you can kind of sense that too. Like when a, when you ask coaches about a guy and they kind of say, well, he can be as good as he wants to be. He just needs to continue to work hard and work hard and work hard. Um, and so I would say that Shy's work ethic was a little uneven those first couple of years. Cause like I said, he came in summer of 2017 and there were no issues. Now out of high school, there were some, some, some schools that had some red flags about him, even though he's a tremendous player. Uh, that's why, you know, some of his offers, he had Alabama, Clemson, all the big, big boys, but some of those were not committable by the time all was said and done to the point where I don't even know had Sean not come to South Carolina, there, there was no like number two team there that, 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 that was strong on him at the time. I, I'm assuming he could have gone a number of other places besides South Carolina, but it was all Gamecocks by the time he decided and all that. I remember going to a school, I went to Union County High School and saw him. Uh, it didn't strike me as the type of kid that, had an attitude problem or anything like that. I, I think it was just we all, I think, when we're younger, you know, we need to iron out some decision-making. And so, some guys that are younger do a lot better than others, uh, and I think that was it. But, I, you know, I, like I said, I don't know exact, the exact specifics of, of what happened. Um, but even if I did know some specifics, I wouldn't throw him under the bus if it wasn't public knowledge because he's going to go to the NFL and uh, – work hard and, you know, playing for the Panthers. He gets to kind of stay around home, and that's a good thing, and, and I think he's a heck of a player. Uh, and, and I think if if Shy Smith had issues with character, like if right now he was a character issue, red flag guy, I think that in the middle of this past season, he would have opted out, even though he was the, the number one guy on the offense. Uh, I think you'd have heard him complain a lot. Uh, I, I, but he did, you know, he, he knew he was the guy going in and he raised his game, his level of play. And he, he was outstanding. Shai Smith was outstanding for the most part this year, even though everybody in the stadium knew it was going to him. It's outstanding. Um, so that's that with that, but yeah, congrats to Shy, And that's a good question, Justin, a very, very good question. And so here we go. That's that. This has been the inside the game Cox podcast. Be sure to check out my segment on JB and Goldwater. That's on their podcast this week. It happened on Wednesday. I'll be back tomorrow with another one. I owe you guys more. I'm going to be on Locked on the Gamecocks podcast for Reunion Thursday with Keith coming up in about a couple hours here. And I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hope you enjoyed Seco de Mayo. For those of you that are – that celebrated that yesterday. I hope you're recovering nicely. This is JC Sherbert. This has been Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Holla at you soon.